0: fast forward to 2023 is we're beginning to see some use cases on public chains becoming better and we've begun to see different um, examples then or testing of permission chains to kind of figure out what works, what doesn't work. And I mean, that's still the state we're in right now.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, head of the Blockchain Incubator. Parth Gargava, product architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. So, Vanessa, really excited to have you here. Um, Jack and Parth are off this week. Um, and in their place, uh, we have uh, Vanessa Carginian of FCAT Research, um, joining us here to talk a little bit about kind of the landscape around enterprise blockchain. Um, and It has a lot of different names, and we'll talk about that. But for now, we'll call it enterprise blockchain. But before we jump in, um, Vanessa, do you want to just give your, give a little bit of an intro and background on yourself?
0: Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, yeah, big shoes to fill. Um, Thanks for for letting me join. So I'm a director of research in FCAT Research. And our team is kind of like the internal think tank uh, a bit. I'm the thematic lead over kind of future of money and thematic crypto research is what I look into and get the opportunity to work with Jason's team with the Blockchain Incubator. Um, So get to look at all the fun things from a a sort of higher order uh, altitude of what's going on with crypto and the blockchain industry in general.
1: Sure. Great, thanks. So I guess just to, to get us started and, and maybe to level set before we get too deep into the conversation, um, you know, we hear a lot about enterprise blockchains. And like I said, they go, go by many different names, enterprise blockchain, distributed ledger technology, private permissioned blockchains. Um, so, Jason... Can you just give us a little bit of an overview um, of perhaps the differences between that and kind of your public permissionless blockchains you, like the Bitcoin blockchain or like the Ethereum network and kind of what some of the differences are? Sure.
2: So it, it's it's an interesting situation because not everybody really understands the, the importance of taxonomy. And there are multiple different ways to apply the taxonomy. So um, maybe to sort of zoom up a bit. Uh, and, and take it from a higher level view. Just starting out, uh, every single blockchain, meaning a, a permissionless ledger that adds transactions and blocks, is a form of a distributed ledger technology or DLT. But, but not every DLT is a blockchain. And when I think about how to try and convince people of the differences, I, I think about the blockchain trilemma between scalability, security, and decentralization. And oftentimes what we see is for folks who are emphasizing the importance of a public permissionless blockchain, they are going to emphasize the uh, the decentralized nature of it. And they'll talk a lot about the security aspect. So we have proof-of-work blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum formerly was prior to the merge. And we have proof-of-stake blockchains. In, in those permissionless environments, you have entities that are providing computing power, either through a miner or uh, providing computing power through validators and, and putting value at risk to help secure that network. And scalability may be the, the, the lower of the three uh, variables in a particular type of calculation as to what type of sporting. I think on the proof of stake, you're starting to see scalability also um, equalize because there's more... Of uh, an emphasis on on faster block times and trying to get more transactions added, but when I think about permissioned or private distributed ledger technologies, or as we talked about them initially, enterprise blockchains, they're often more anchored around scalability and security, and decentralization is is not quite as important for some of those actors. And what they want to do is they want to think about um, how they can improve operational efficiencies or improve the uh, amount of data they can share in a in a shorter time frame but the security aspect is very different they they may not always utilize a miner or a validator type of uh, security network in fact they may be looking at it almost as if it's more like a shared database and they're securing the endpoints and APIs against intrusion from non permitted actors so either way what i what i think about is attributes you need for success. You know, so we know that we, in the permissionless cases, we often see uh, that there's a crypto reward that is your economic incentive for participating um, in a permission space. You may have an economic incentive, which is to maybe lower costs for operating, or maybe even improve uh, margins because you might have increased sales as a result, but in both permissionless and enterprise blockchains, I sort of break it down into five attributes that you need for success. Um, You need to have a committed, minimally viable ecosystem of participants. Um, And this isn't really interesting, one need to have interoperable, if not common platform technology. In all cases, you need standard protocols to ensure consistency across the network. But strong governance is needed also to ensure growth, stability, and sustainability. And, and lastly, you need an economic incentive. And as I mentioned, that economic incentive may vary, whether it be uh, some type of crypto reward for participation in securing network or some other uh, economic realization through a permission network. So I know it's a, a lot to sort of go back and forth, but if there's one thing that I really want to emphasize on is that we've we've had uh, the Bitcoin not blockchain conversations, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Uh, We've had permission, permissionless. I think there's space for both types of architectures to be implemented. And it really depends on the use case and and the desired outcomes. But there's also potentially at some point, uh, some connectivity. So maybe some anchoring uh, of permissioned to permissionless or vice versa. But it's a lot to cover. So
1: yeah, no, that, that was a great overview. Thanks. And I, I think it's just helpful kind of context to build the rest of the discussion on top of. So we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, permissioned and permissionless and how it it used to be very um, black and white, you know, between those two kind of different technologies where over time, and then we're talking probably, you know, Five to ten years ago, whereas over time, you know, the technologies and particularly um, developments on top of you know open permissionless blockchains have kind of maybe blurred the lines a little bit between those two things, um, but. I think, Vanessa, before we get any further, it would be helpful to hear from you a little bit about how companies are using this technology. And when I say this technology, let's focus on the the permission blockchain um, just for now. Um, what are some of the use cases that we're seeing that are, that are most common?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I think before we get into it, I think the record keeping aspect of it is kind of the biggest play when you're thinking about specifically permission or enterprise. Um, uh, Blockchains, right? And it's what Jason was saying in regards to trying to gain operational efficiencies, and through that you're getting saving saving money, cost effects. Um, Also, there's a ways to thinking about how could we, how can you better just coordinate. Uh, collaboration so that's why often if you hear of enterprise ones they're often related to like supply chain use cases because you have multiple parties it's very complex and maybe this is a way that you can come together so that kind of that use as a maybe a better shared database and we can have you know that it's an open question is it better than what we currently have as a database or is it not Um, where some people say it's just a superior database and that's and we're getting the benefits of cost savings and that's why they're beginning to implement it. Um, But yeah, so it's all about kind of multi-party coordination record-keeping and just that angle of it is, is I think the use cases and to me that's actually been when I was thinking about just when I first heard about blockchain technology as a whole I've always been driven by what can the technology aspects do like how can this just be improved um, whereas you know some folks are, are, have always been more interested in sort of you know think of like the ethos or the original ethos of Bitcoin Bitcoin being its intention which has remained true is to be sort of an alternative to like fiat money right and it's it's still sort of in that lane doing that. Um, one of the bigger changes is, right, was Ethereum sort of comes along in 2015 saying, OK, I see what you're doing, Bitcoin. This is really interesting from a decentral aspect. But they really, I would make the argument Ethereum is what made blockchains this foundational technology that others want to build upon. And, and um, I don't know if you keep going back to what we were talking about a little bit in the prep as well was when you think back then to that 2015-2016 time frame, there was only one choice. It was public or permissioned, because there was no way to put privacy on the permission chains um, at that time. And so in in order to do obviously if you're just working with sp- technology firm, if you're a business, you have security perspectives that you have to meet. You have privacy things that, that need to be hit, right? And so that was why you had these two camps kind of devol- uh, evolve. And what's changed now, kind of, you know, fast forward to 2023 is we're beginning to see some use cases on public chains becoming better. We're be- and we've begun to see different um, examples then or testing of permission chains to kind of figure out what works, what doesn't work? And I mean, that's still the state we're in right now, right? Is trying to figure out what, what's, what's that. And I'll stop there, but then we can talk about different use cases too. But yeah.
2: What, one thing I'll just jump in on is because I, I think it's fascinating. You know, Thinking about this topic and I was coming back through some of my, uh, my earlier research and studies, what I, what I find interesting is oftentimes the camp that somebody initially came into the blockchain space with permissioned or permissionless was influenced on their background and what they were trying to get at. So I think you're right. When you talk about the ethos, um, this is, you know, permission aren't necessarily about the whole be your own bank thesis, but I came at it looking at from a business perspective initially and thought, wow, there's a lot of efficiency that could be gained if we had better records. The amount of reconciliation that happens in, in a number of different industries is an was just tremendous area for improvement. Uh, whether it be in terms of technology or just outright elimination by having common data. So I I think that's something that I I would like us to sort of acknowledge because it really does feed into some of that that existed and still does exist as to whether or not you think one technology is, uh, is worth spending time researching over the other.
0: That, that's fair. And I should have, I didn't say it in the beginning, but my background is more in economics and policy. And so prior to Fidelity, I was at the Federal Reserve. And so I think that aspect of why you need kind of financial stability and kind of regulating, that's kind of what has attracted me to like that record keeping aspect to, to improve it. Um so an example, for instance, on the supply chain aspects, um, which uh, is is uh, Walmart. They use Hyperledger uh, Fabric, which is a permission chain. But before they implemented the solution on all of their freight carriers, so all the trucks that are car- carrying like cargo to different Walmart uh, stores, they, they had 70% of their invoices required manual reconciliation. And now that they've implemented a kind of supply chain blockchain in this sense, Actually, only one and a half percent of their invoices require re- reconciliation. So, obviously, a big kind of uh, just within that small ecosystem of the suppliers and Walmart themselves, they've kind of had this aspect. And yes, to people that are mostly focused on, you know, kind of looking at DeFi and crypto, it's kind of like, well, why, why, why is that interesting? But from a business use case, that's that's a big savings to those people. Um, and so that's that's one example. I'm. Get into others, but yeah, Ryan, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, and I think that example kind of highlights one of the points that Jason made, and I think it's really around kind of the network effect, right? Yeah. And and your need to either have net critical mass via the network effect or or not, right? Depending on what the use case is, and I think in these cases, like if you have kind of a set consortium of companies that would participate in the network, it's much easier to implement the private network, right? Um, and still gain the efficiencies associated with having that distributed ledger. Whereas if you had a larger group, particularly around some of the financial services use cases, where we think about trading and settlement and things like that, well, all of a sudden, that network becomes much bigger, achieving the critical mass necessary to capture those efficiencies is a lot harder to get to, right? Because you have to have everyone sign on for the same standards. Arguably, they would all have to run nodes in the network, right? And so that that is a little bit different. So that's what jumps out to me there. And I think even like larger companies with a lot of subsidiaries, um, and I'm thinking about one large bank in particular, um, where are all on the same DLT, that can also, if you're talking about "quote unquote" one institution, right? Um, can also have some efficiency um, from from a just from a record keeping standpoint.
0: Yeah. I, I don't want it to make it sound like that it's it's one or the other, that you have to be in the public or the permission sphere. The the Bank of International Settlements, for instance, which is kind of like the central bankers collection of, of things, they have a lot of different experiments that are actually trying to think about how can you use in financial services maybe uh, public chains and DeFi and connecting to financial services. And they've had several um, uh, large uh, financial institutions kind of participating in that. And I think that's to me, is also very interesting. And I know That's kind of, I think, Jason, what we're talking about, where it's blurred a little bit over the years of how will this work? Like, how do we see this interconnection between kind of the use of like doing things on a public chain and kind of with permit privacy? Um, So that it's to me, those are the kind of examples that are really interesting to also study going forward, because it's not just saying. You're in this one isolated ecosystem of walled-offness. Um, and then you have this other camp of public that's completely open. It's it's the, how do these two bridge? Um, and that's, to me, the most exciting part about all of this. And that's when all, where all of these discussions regarding what assets require tokenization, how do CBDCs fit in, how do stable coins fit in. That's like those questions that I find very interesting and that it's still kind of um, – those are the details we're, we're, we're seeing in real time, how that's going to play out over the next like year or two.
2: Yeah, I, or I think you're right. And, and that's why I want to emphasize the interoperability, if not common technology, because we see that today outside of crypto. You see that with securities markets, for example. You've got securities that may settle in multiple different central securities depositories, and they need to be interoperable, whether it's, you know, Euroclear, Crest, or DTCC, or you know, any number of national uh, depositories. But I think one of the things that I, I find promising is that some of the permissioned use cases in, in implementations that we've seen have been forks of permissionless public blockchains. So some are, are straight DLT that, that might be building off of a, a, a consensus mechanism that was intended for, um, I'll call it known and trusted parties to operate together. Uh, so that they're securing in different ways, but some are, are utilizing uh, the same type of consensus mechanisms that are used in public chains. So, you know, we think and talk a lot on the crypto brief about uh, DeFi and interoperability across protocols. When you think about it, cross protocol, one could be private, one could be public. We talked in the early days a lot about side chains. You might have a side chain that is permission. And that permission chain anchors to and obtains some additional security from a a public permissionless chain.
1: So we've talked a little bit about tokenization, but I think maybe it's worthwhile digging in there a little bit more, just because I think that's where a lot of people's minds go when they think about, um, you know, enterprise blockchain. And so Jason and Vanessa, I know you've both been following really closely what the DTC has done in this space. Um, can you just provide an overview of, of what they're looking at and, and kind of how that might tie all of this together?
2: Yeah, Vanessa, do you want to take that one and I can jump in after?
0: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so just at a highest level, like, so right now, like DTCC is using a permission chain um, to kind of process about 100,000 to um, uh, 160,000 bilateral equity transactions daily. And when they're doing this, like, if you think about it, like right now, um, it's it's called, uh, usually equities take about two days uh, to settle. But this is kind of an alternative private blockchain that people don't have to use, but they're just wanting to kind of have it there. So, so that if you are so more inclined to kind of experiment with this technology, that they can begin to sort of fold this into just normal, make it like normal operations. Um, it was developed within kind of like the, the leading kind of 15 leading kind of financial firms. And it's, it's basically a live like parallel production play right now. Um, so it, like I said, it gives, the, it gives the opportunity to kind of begin to explore this technology and settle faster than what you currently have. It gives the opportunity to actually experiment, but then, but still kind of test out the kinks, like kick the tires on how is this actually going to work. And Jason, I know you, you, you know some of the, the details kind of on the back end maybe as well.
2: Yeah, so I, I, I think it, it's really important that you call out the context of trying to shorten or reduce the settlement cycle. So independent of this uh, tokenization effort, which DTC refers to as Project ION, they've uh, actually, I believe it was in the past week, uh, two weeks, uh, they've gotten approval from the SEC to shorten the standard settlement cycle for equities to T plus one from the current T plus two. And uh, just for context, it was in 2017 when we actually implemented the, the reduction from T plus three to T plus two. So how you enable shortening of that settlement cycle is really about, in in many respects, the the matching of the trades and the clearing of the trade, which allows it to be settled. So um, when I think about it, why, you know, you've got counterparty credit risk, but you've also got a tremendous amount of capital that's tied up securing the uh, counterparty between the trade and the settlement uh, date itself. So what DTCC has done is they, they've worked to create digital twins uh, of shares that are held at Seed Co. in street names. So, Seed Co. being a DTCC entity that holds the, the equities. And they're utilizing tokenization to allow for faster trade matching and clearance. So, both parties uh, agree to the transaction details, and then it is presented to the clearinghouse for clearing. And once it's been accepted for clearing, it can settle. So this tokenization activity, which you rightly pointed out right now, is production parallel. It's a mechanism that allows the depository to get trades ready for clearance in a shorter time frame. It currently doesn't have a tie in with digital dollars. So you won't have actual settlement of digital on-chain dollars versus uh, tokenized securities that, that may come at a future date. Uh, DTC has talked about Project Lithium uh, to go along with Ion. Lithium is a digital dollar project uh, experiment. And I think for the depository, this is a step towards getting transactions settled faster, but they haven't yet taken it to the length of servicing those assets for already settled um, positions at the depository. So it's sort of, uh, I'll call it step one uh, in, in a tokenization chain.
1: So I think we've all kind of glossed over it in different ways, but I just we may just want to put a, a slightly finer point on it. So when we t- when we talk about tokenized fiat in this context, Jason, why is that important when we think about settlement? Maybe for those who are not familiar with you know how that process works now.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I'm glad you you pulled it out for a, a finer point. The securities today typically settle. Uh, in a model called delivery versus payment, meaning the cash leg and the security leg of the transaction settle simultaneously. And you do that through the depository. But if you have a tokenized security, but you don't have tokenized cash, then it's an asynchronous process, which would require additional reconciliation. So you don't want to necessarily credit one party with, say, the securities and then not have debited them the cash in a consistent way. So uh, we think about foreign exchange transactions a lot and how there may be asynchronous settlement risk there. Uh, That led to the creation of an entity called Continuous Link Settlement. So they could get payment versus payment. So reduce that asynchronous settlement risk. When we talk about security tokenization, I think the the end state goal should be atomic settlement, where you have a simultaneous exchange for the the payment asset versus the security asset. But we're not quite there yet in the US.
1: So just switching gears a little bit, I think we've talked... A bit about you know the positive externalities of this technology and how it's being implemented but i i think it's worthwhile just for the sake of balance what what are some of the potential drawbacks or challenges with um and you know implementing this at scale you know whether you know and we could talk about it maybe in a use case agnostic way even though i know certain use cases have certain drawbacks um vanessa do you have any thoughts on this
0: well, I, I guess my thought kind of goes back to kind of my central banking days to some degree, but this question of how do you how do you begin to adopt technology and then adjust risks for it? Some crypto folks thought, like uh, leaders have criticized when policymakers say, well, why are you studying safety and soundness or financial stability? But this point of financial policymakers, at least, are trying to kind of keep things level, right? And so I don't know, the best way I can think about it is think, think about how did we transition the trading floor from a paper-based trading floor that had open outcry to something that's more electronic, right? It, it didn't happen overnight, but we had to kind of change who are the players involved and what are the risks involved with this and how do we want to change? Because there was some capability that we wanted. And the capability I think that Jason just described, right, this instant kind of value transfer, um, that to me is very interesting. And if that's the capability we want to pursue, then we have to think through how do we adjust the risks um, so that there's not unintended risks, like with this upgrade to the technology. And so, so that's, that's kind of where I, where I think of like, what are the, what are the unintended consequences? And I, uh, of that. And I think that's why sometimes you see just policymakers in general being cautious about this because they, they're, they're trying to not just, they they can't, they have to think about the system as a whole of how, of how it works. Um,
2: Yeah. I, I think this is a really interesting question for a couple of different reasons. and in, in The first one being that it really depends on your own personal bias when you start looking at a particular use case and understanding what it is that you're trying to solve for. And a lot of times uh, there's a, a human tendency to try and lead with a technology or a solution before truly comprehending the challenge or the problem that they're working on. So. Uh, I, I think a lot of times when you talk about these enterprise solutions, someone may have come forward thinking that this is the right way because I, I need to share information. Well, they may not truly appreciate the challenges of achieving that minimally viable, committed ecosystem. So you might have people that are ideologically aligned, but then resource misaligned. <laughs> you know, So you often see that with some consortia that have, that have come around. Where parties agree that there's a problem, they disagree on how to solve it, or even if they agree that this could be one potential solution, they, they can't necessarily line up uh, what's needed to uh, achieve things in the, at the same time. Um, and, and also, one of the, the challenges is whether or not the entity has the technological capabilities, right? Right. Standing up a, a ledger and operating it on a 24 by 7 by 365 basis can be resource intensive. Um, there's also questions about whether or not they trust another entity's cybersecurity practices. So all of the firms that, that are in the financial services industry are extremely focused on cybersecurity, as, as with other industries. But you know what you know about your own environments but you don't know what you don't know about some other potential partners environments. So you really have to get into that standards and governance discussion about ensuring that you have the appropriate cybersecurity controls in place and that also will affect the economic calculus. You know, what might be economically viable for some may not be for others. So that gets back to that whole, what level of commitment are you at? And you know, are you agreeing to common, and if not common, interoperable tech. So yeah. that's a that's a lot of factors into an equation. And it's a number of different stakeholders across different organizations, which is, I think, why we've seen, as you pointed out earlier, uh, sometimes individual institutions that have multiple sub, uh, subsidiaries are the ones who are able to make progress faster because they control more of the decision-making environment. There's more of a, a central appreciation and I realized the irony of that central appreciation.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> of the Of the potential efficiencies and, you know, yeah. the gains. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So we only have a few minutes left. I think I'd like to close by maybe just kind of <laughs> teasing out what's next. What are, what, you know, what are we thinking about moving forward? What are, what do we think will, will be the most important trends? Um, and maybe, you um, just kind of watch areas, you know, as we, as we think about enterprise blockchain and adoption, um, you know, in the context of, um, you know, potentially there could be more adoption of public chains as well.
0: Yeah. I think the two points are interoperability, interoperability between kind of legacy systems and blockchains and then block between public blockchain ecosystems themselves. So we're already beginning to see some tech companies kind of offering uh, as a service plays to try to help kind of in like, the same vein of cloud, like trying to help other smaller firms sort of scale and make it easier to kind of start up and work on a blockchain. I think that's really interesting. And that's a a big point. You're starting to see some folks um, also offer normal programming language or more common programming languages. So trying to like bridge that gap of like, if you can, you can still use, you know, Java, Go, like stuff, stuff that developers are familiar with and then still kind of use it on the blockchain i think i think that those types of interoperabilities are very interesting um also just in general like i kind of keep an eye on uh the right like very high level regulatory discussions right what's the difference between kind of the u.s perspective versus the european kind of perspective or the Asian perspective and then so with that that goes back to our tokenized money questions like how are the CBDCs and stable coins how are those positions changing right because Mm -hmm. that's going to be that question mark that goes or that detail that goes into kind of that tokenized money aspect, just tokenized asset kind of al- elements to it. And then um, if that's not enough to kind of keep track of, I'm really interested in like layer two developments, sort of what Polygon's been doing in regards to like their partnerships with other firms, some of the big corporations to see where are they testing the waters at? Um, not because we don't we like what they're doing per se, uh, like one over the other saying one's better than the other, but just... I think anytime you kind of have a handle on where are there people trying to experiment, it, it just helps us better have an understanding of maybe. Then where we're going. Yeah, exactly. Where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's good. Uh, those, those are some things I'm looking at, um, in general.
1: And that's why you're a full-time researcher, right? it's a full-time <laughs> job to track. Yeah, that's things.
0: why it's a full-time <laughs> job. Exactly. So,
1: uh, Jason, do you have anything to add in the last minute? <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I
2: definitely think that Vanessa's, um, Work is is incredibly valuable because it, it's very very diverse. You know, just reiterate around the regulatory front. There's some un, there's some um, call it a, a lack of equilibrium in different jurisdictions about what you can and cannot do. So I think as as that continues to mature, there'll be a little bit more uh, I'll call it pace in in some of these these evolutions. But I also think that uh, beyond that, you have stable coins in potentially CBDCs, they will facilitate different types of uh, activities. But most importantly that I look forward to, as Vanessa talked about, the uh, the layer two, I still think we've got a lot of work to do around scalability and privacy. And I think privacy preserving technologies will absolutely give us a chance to take things further and help address some of those barriers that would prevent uh, corporates or large uh, institutions from engaging in some of the uh, permissionless uh, ledgers today. But the other thing really comes down to, how do you pay for your transactions? And if you have to pay for your transaction in native cryptocurrency, we'll have to figure out, are, are, are folks willing to hold that that unit of account that will power uh, the, the cost of compute?
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to finish. So Vanessa, thank you so so much. You're the you're the first external guest on the Crypto Brief. Um, you did not disappoint. Um, thank you. <laughs> we look forward to having you back um, when you know uh, you know your next research report drops. Um, but thank you again for joining, Jason. Thank you, um, and we'll be back to our regular scheduled programming next week. Thanks.
3: Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile can become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.